Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 16. It is good to see you, church family. It is good to see you. And it's good to open up God's word together. Um, what a mercy it is to be able to do so. May God bless our time together in his word. So Philippians 3, verses 12 to 16. So one of the relatively great losses of this season of cancellations and postponements has been the Boston Marathon. And when I say great losses, I'm obviously relatively. There have been much that has been far greater. But the, the marathon, there's something special even moving about watching tens of thousands of people who, who run that race, the world's most famous marathon. And the thing about those tens of thousands of people that are running in the marathon is that they aren't running 26.2 miles um, for the first time, or, or, or they aren't, this wasn't something that was decided on the spur of the moment. They didn't wake up that morning and look outside and say, hey, it's sunny, and I don't really have much on the schedule today, so I guess, I guess I'll go run the marathon. I've got a few hours. No, that, that's not what happened, right? They, they trained, they, uh, they, they put forth so much effort and, and exhibited great discipline uh, in, in, in months and even years of preparation to the point that for many, running the marathon is just the culmination of hundreds and hundreds of miles that they had run in preparation for that moment. Of course, if I'm honest, my favorite part of the Boston Marathon, beyond a shadow of a doubt, and I, I, I bet it's some of your favorite parts as well, my favorite part of the Boston Marathon is the fact that I'm not running it. I am not a runner. I love playing sports. I love swimming. I love biking. But running, no, not, not for me. Not for me. There's something about it, whether it's the heat or, you know, I've heard rumors before. I think I saw on Facebook one time that it's bad for your joints uh, to run. So I'll, I'll go with that one and just say it's a personal health decision uh, for reasons that I don't run, whatever it is. But, you know, I, it, that's not for me. I can find excuses to not go for a run. And I wonder if that's how we are sometimes in our growth as Christians or in the Christian life. We'll observe, maybe, maybe, maybe if you take this picture of a marathon where there's uh, spectators off to the side watching the runners go, we'll, we'll observe, we'll cheer, we'll even marvel at the physical accomplishments, at the determination, at the discipline on the parts of those who are running, who are participating. But when it comes to us, eh, we'd rather just stay on the sidelines. Maybe eat a nice snack, have a nice cool beverage. Maybe we might get on the race course a little later, but let's, let's, let's do a leisurely stroll here. Let's not get ahead of ourselves and try to run anything of great distance. Is that your heart sometimes when it comes to growth in the faith? I know it is mine. But the Apostle Paul addresses this kind of heart in Philippians 3, verses 12 to 16. In fact, he doesn't give us this option of staying on the sidelines. He doesn't give us the option of making excuses like growth in the faith is bad for our health or it's not exactly our thing. No. It's like he runs by us and we're off on the sideline and he grabs us by the hand and pulls us into the race and now we can't get out of it. Follow along as I read Philippians 3, verses 12 to 16. Paul writes, not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, 
forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So this morning we're going to see that maturity and growth for the Christian is found in straining forward towards Christ. Let me say that again. Maturity, growth for the Christian is found in straining forward towards Christ. We're going to see this in this passage and we're going to see three things. We're going to see Paul's conviction and then Paul giving a correction and then Paul telling us where our confidence lies. So conviction, correction, confidence, okay? Now, the, the first point there, Paul's conviction, it is, it is going to take, uh, it, it is going to hold the lion's share of our time together. So if we're getting to the point where normally you'd say, okay, he should be wrapping up and he's just starting point two or something like that, don't, don't get alarmed. Uh, know, know that know, know everything's under control. Uh, Lord willing. So Paul, Paul's conviction here, okay? Paul's conviction is that we strain forward in Christ, that he would strain forward in Christ. He writes in verse 12 that he has not already obtained this, that he is uh, not already perfect. You see that in verse 12. And, and so the question we have to ask is, okay, so what is the this? Let's remember back to verse 11 that we saw last week in our time in God's word where he said that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul's talking about his his development as a, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, is one in which he's continually progressing, continually growing. And it, it's something that he strives towards to reach that moment, to, to reach that completion. But it's not something he has reached. And we as Christians believe that God's word teaches us that, that we never reach it in this life. We only reach it whenever we are in the presence of Christ for eternity. However, this doesn't mean that we don't chase after it. it, it, it the, the, the straining towards godliness, the straining towards Christ-likeness that Paul lays before us is the means by which God grows us as Christians. And so he says, um, he says here, not I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And so th- that word perfect could elicit some kinds of responses from us and and. What this is, is it's the promised completion of God's work in us. And so when Paul writes of becoming perfect, he's not writing of some kind of like moral perfection. You know, like, like, like he's saying, I, I'm going to become perfect like, and, and think of like a goody two-shoes or, or somebody who just becomes so morally sound that, that there is no, uh, no, no discrepancy in them. No, that's not what he's getting at. Although that, you, you could ar- obviously argue that Christ-like conduct is a, is a central part of the work that God is doing in us. But he's not, th- that's not all that he's doing in us. So it's not this moral compl- perfection. It's not this like lifestyle perfection where he just becomes somebody that, that's like that perfect individual who has it all figured out, who can you know, change their own oil, who can do their own taxes, who can uh, uh, replace things in their house, who can uh, uh, tell you how to cook a turkey just the right way, who, who that person who just seems to have life all figured out. And he's saying he's not something about physical perfection either. It's not that he's talking about that, that I'm going to be able to push back the effects of aging upon the human body or upon my body or anything like that. No, Paul is talking about what, what, what he's getting at is the complete work that God is doing in us. He's writing of the full and total completion of God's work in the life of the Christian to make you, to make us into the likeness of Christ. 
And so this isn't the work of God making us better Christians or better people right here, right now. That's definitely a product of it, but that's not all that it is. But what Paul's getting at here in talking about being made perfect is, and his conviction as far as our pursuit as believers, is that Paul is getting at this work that God is doing in us to prepare us for eternity by molding us into who he will have us to be in heaven when we are in his presence. You could say that, that what Paul's getting at is what growth as a Christian looks like. If you ever wondered, what does that time period from my conversion at age 20 or at age 50 or at age 80, what does the time period between my conversion and between completion of, of my life, what does that time period in the middle look like? Well, Paul says, straining forward, pressing on, chasing after, Pressing on to make this Christ-likeness, this, this experience of the glory and the riches of Christ in his life, his own. But then look at the, the thing that he qualifies this with, that he notes with this. He says in verse 12, he presses on to make it his own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Now let's not get lost in this interesting language or for lack of details here. Clue in with me here. Paul is saying, that Jesus has made him his own. That Jesus says that, that God in his power, God in his grace, God in his sovereign reach over our lives, God has seized Paul. He has made me his own. Christ Jesus has made me his own. That God has seized hold of him. He's taken possession of him. Yet Paul has not yet made this life of perfection or completion or, or this glorification of Christ in his life. He has not made it his own yet. But he's working out what God has already begun to do in him. That is our hope as Christians, that we are working out, we are living out what God has already begun in us, that God has already promised to complete in us. So the the joy of verse 12 is, in one sense, that not that Paul is saying, I'm not perfect. It's not like Paul's saying, I'm perfect, you be perfect like me. He's saying, none of us are perfect, but look, Christ has taken hold of us, and Christ has promised to complete his work in us. So the sureness of what he's doing has been promised. He who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion. So if you think about this, okay, how am I made, my, how am I made Christ's own? How, or not how am I made Christ's own, that's a divine act of God in us. But, but how do I make him my own? How do I press on to this? How do I seize hold of this? Now, as I was writing this sermon, I thought about, okay, you know, what are the, what are the things that I could tell the, the church to do? But then I thought it's deeper than just telling somebody to do something. It's more thinking along the lines of how do I orient the whole nature of my life towards Christ? And so think about it like this. Think about like our head, our heart, our hands, our hopes. Think about all the aspects of our lives. The aim is to bring ourselves in line with what God has made us and what God is making us. And so if I think about my head, my, my, my mind, which is consumed with whatever thoughts dominate my mind, my aim ought to be a, a, a pursuit of orienting my mind around the things of God, around the character of God, around the nature of God, around the work of God, who He is, what He has done, what He is doing. So I, I should press on to seek to know more of God, whether it's in His Word and in and, and, and studying theology, And filling my mind with these things because that's the finish line to which I am going. In one sense, life here is all about preparing myself for life in eternity. 
And this is where it's dramatically or noticeably different than how we view life in just this world, okay? So much, so much that we experience in, life, in this world is a means by which to try to make the present, to try to make it eternal, to make it have, have, have uh, the utmost significance, the utmost importance, the eternal power to, to, to try to uh, stretch what I experience now, what I give my life to now, to have this um, supernatural power or experience to it. And yet what Paul is saying here is that that's not how we view life as Christians. Paul is saying we view life through an eternal lens where we are bringing eternity here to today. And so I'm preparing my life now, not for the sake of tomorrow, but for the sake of 10,000 tomorrows. And so if I'm going to see, if, if, if the experience of heaven is going to be a continual unfolding of more and more of the glory of God for all of eternity, don't, want I, don't I want to get a jump start on that today? So think about what our minds give ourselves to. I was convicted on this on how much my mind is just simply given to the numbing effects of Netflix, of Amazon Prime. Of not, not, there's nothing wrong with entertainment. There's nothing wrong with, well, there's some things wrong with some entertainment, but you know what I'm getting at here. Um, there, there's nothing wrong with, with, with common graces that God has given to us. Watching a ball game, you know, watching a good movie, that kind of thing. But we must be mindful that our minds aren't given over to just that, that, that drivel. But may our minds continually meditate upon, continually ponder the work of God as revealed in his word and as revealed in his, his, the, the ways in which he has shown us his truths in theology and in doctrine. The ways in which he grows us to understand what he's doing in the world. But, but not just think about our head, think about our hearts. May our hearts continually be transformed into the heart of Christ. Where I'm currently given to passions of this life or passions that are fleeting, my heart is free in Christ to savor Christ to become the person that he is making me into. Think about how liberating that is. What are the doubts that you carry about yourself? What are the pains that you carry about yourself? What are the areas in which your own Your own mind, your own emotions, your own soul feels like it torments or teases or antagonizes you. Past memories, past regrets, burned relationships, whatever it might be. Our hearts that are prone to outburst, our hearts that are prone to um, lashing out, What are the things that you carry around? Things that cause you to feel as if you might never stack up. Things that cause you to feel as if to to, to carry burdens that you you, you wonder if life is just going to be a continual burden for you. Well, Paul answers this and says, well, no. Paul says this work of God in us and growing us more and more into Christ's likeness is a work that he is doing in order to set our hearts free from the bondage and the pain of, of our own sin, our own regrets, or even the sin and the shame and the, and, the, and the actions of others towards us. And to find in Christ life, and to find in Christ freedom, to find in Christ relief, to find in Christ redemption. And now here's the thing that's, that, that's so 
convicting about that. In one sense, it's liberating, but in another sense, it's convicting. And here's what's convicting about it. Whenever we see that Christ has claimed that Christ grabs hold of our hearts and that Christ is in this work of, of changing our hearts by his word and by his work in us, then that requires us to lay everything on the table. You can no longer say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, just, a, I'm just a passionate person. Or, you know, you, you can't have other ones explain for you, well, he's just that way. Well, the nature of Christianity is that you and I, he and she, they all were once that way. But in the grace of God, by the power of God, not making you turn over a new leaf, but giving you a new life, he is now making you into a new person. That's all that, 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 that's all that we saw back in verses 1 through 11 of Philippians chapter 2, or chapter 3, excuse me. God is making us into new people. He's preparing us to be eternal beings. And so that, that's the dichotomy or the, the, the paradox of the Christian life, right? Where our bodies are wasting away, our souls are growing more and more beautiful in the glory of Christ Jesus whom we treasure. And so our head, our heart, now think about our, just our physical nature. Do we give more attention to our souls? Do we give more attention to the inward person or to the outward person that we see in the mirror? May we be free from the bondage of feeling as if we have to look a certain way, feeling as if we have to dress a certain way, feeling as if we act, have to act a certain way, feeling as if we have to come across a certain way, feeling as if we have to keep appearances up for the sake of others. But may we be free to, uh, to, to, to acknowledge and even to rejoice in our weakness made known, our weakness laid before us even in difficulty, knowing that God is bringing that new person out, that God is growing that new person in His grace and in His power. And so if you are learning more and more about Christianity, one thing I want to share with you that we see here is that God does not promise to give you a better life today. But God invites you into an understanding of life in which He has designed it and He has created it. And so life does not get any easier when you become a Christian, but perhaps life starts to make sense in ways that you did not know previously. Because as you yield your life to Christ, as you repent of your sin, and as you believe on Christ for salvation... You find in him the purposes for which your creator has designed you. And you find in him the purposes for your life that he is making of you that stretch all the way back to the original design he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. So Paul says, not that I've already obtained this, I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. And so that's in verse 12, I press on. And then he says in verse 13, I do not consider I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, and then verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so you read this language, you see, okay, I press on, I strain forward, I press on. The Christian life, what Paul lays before us, is not something to be casually approached, but it's something to be vigorously pursued. And now here's the danger. Here's something that you, you hear this. You see Paul using this language, I press on, I strain, I, I, I strive after, I press on towards this. And you might say, okay, hold on a second, Paul. I thought the whole thing about Christianity is that you're saved by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone, namely saying, I can't do anything to earn God's love for me, but it's given to me through Christ out of no merit of my own, out of no accomplishment of my own. So is this some now bait and switch that Paul has laid before us? This is a bait and switch where Paul is now saying, well, actually, the effort does rely on you. You've got to do your part. 
Jesus did his part, now you do your part. No, that's not what Paul's saying here. Remember back in verse 12, right? Remember back in verse 12, where he says, uh, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me my own. And then verse 14, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. See that? I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. It's this call that God has already placed upon him, this work that God is already bringing him to. And so this, the, the certainty here, the incompleteness is on our part of, of being made perfect, but the certainty and the promise of what God is doing in us is that he will complete it and that he has completed it essentially already in Christ. So let that give relief to your soul. Let that give relief to your soul, and I'll explain a little more how that gives us relief in just a moment. But understand these words from the uh, longtime professor of philosophy at USC, University of Southern California, and brilliant writer on spiritual formation, Dallas Willard. He wrote, and this is important for us to see at this, grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. Paul's not talking about our earning here. We, we, the salvation we have earned in Christ is, is through Christ what he has earned. Grace now compels us to effort in Christ. And so as we consider this picture, we consider what Paul says, and he says in verse 13, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Here's the beauty of the gospel. Here's the beauty of Christ seizing us, taking us for his own, and then calling us to chase after him to make him our own. All right? Here's the beauty of this. As we run this race, as we, as we pursue, follow after Christ, we do so with the encouragement, with the comfort, but also with the warning that the things that we might have hold us back, we are free to leave those in the background. And that's a two-edged sword here, okay? Well, there's benefits, but there's also things to be aware of here. With Paul, perhaps the, 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 the great spiritual accomplishments that he listed in, in the first part of chapter 3. He's saying, I've got to leave those in the background. I'm running now towards Christ. I'm chasing after Christ and the person that he is making me into, not the person I am trying to become the best of, but I'm running after the person that Christ is making me into. So that's one, one, one burden there where we are called not to rest on our own spiritual laurels. What are your past spiritual accomplishments? Maybe a great high of a mission trip or a camp experience or you remember a Bible study that was really, really poignant and valuable and wonderful to you. The Lord uses those things to grow us, but he doesn't leave us opportunity to remain in that place. A life of devotion to Christ, a life of discipleship in Christ is not a life of checking out or of resting on our laurels or on a status quo. You don't see somebody run the marathon and stop at about mile 17 and say, you know, I think I'm good here. I think I'm good. You guys tell me how it goes at the finish line. No, we're called to run the race. Now the other side of that is that when Paul says that I forget what lies behind and I press forward to what lies ahead, there's good news and grace in that. The things that lie behind, the things that you might say, I don't know if I'll ever be of any spiritual good. I don't know if I'll ever be of any good or use to God. I just don't have it in me. I don't have the gifts. I don't have the confidence. I don't have, I don't have all these other things. This, these other people are so much better at this Christianity thing than I am. I feel like I'm just a walking, talking, stumbling mistake. 
Well, no matter how much you feel you might be a mistake or no matter how much regret or mistakes you have in your own background, Paul calls us, he says, well, keep running. Keep running. The beautiful thing about the marathon, yeah, I guess there's a winner. But people don't rejoice at, I, I, I've had friends that run the marathon and I've never asked any of them what place they finished. You might know people that have run the marathon. Have you asked them what place they finished? They tell you something like 15,734th. And you don't look at them and say, you know, if you had just made the top 15,000. No, it's a matter that they finished. Some of us might run a little faster than others, or they might have the appearance of running a little faster, but they're like the guy who runs really fast, who sprints the first mile and a half, and then is out of gas the rest of the way. Maybe in the Christian life we ought to try less like being... Usain Bolt, the world's fastest man, and more like simply being the little engine that could. Just keep on going. Just keep on going. Straight forward to what lies ahead. So those are Paul's words to us. And then he calls us, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. This is just one more reminder. This call of God is not a call like God saying, come to me. Run hard, get to me. No, it's a call of God that he's already placed upon us when he's brought us from death to life, when he's brought us into new life as Christians. So we're straining forward. We're we're simply running the race that he's laid out before us and that he's equipped us to run, knowing that he is running with us, that he empowers and enables us for every step of the run. And so what Paul is saying here, he's saying you run as fast as you can, you strain forward as hard as you can, but he's also saying the system is rigged that you are going to finish because he is with you and he has begun this work in you. And we're going to see even more in a moment that he has completed the work already. So that's Paul's conviction. Run, strain, press on, go forward. Now look at the correction that he gives in verse 15. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. If in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. So Paul seems to think that there might be some who were thinking to themselves, I'm a lot further down the path than I thought I was, or, or, or than you think I am, excuse me. Have you ever been in that boat, or you're trying to get somewhere, or maybe you were out for a run, let's just keep the running illustration going all morning, um, where you, you, maybe you went for a run with a friend, and they said, hey, we're just going to go around this way or whatever, and, and, and you look up and you say, hey, are, are we almost done? They say, oh no, we're, we're not even halfway done yet, and you're exhausted, you're dead tired. Or maybe you were driving somewhere at one point and you thought what would be a uh, three-hour trip turned into a nine-hour trip. I remember one time my family was on vacation in Canada and I was looking at the map and what I thought was just a city about, you know, 30 or 40 miles across the border was a city about 300 miles across the border. Canada's a big country. The map is really big and so distances are kind of (laughs) small. You know what I'm saying there. I'm not sure I said that right, but you know it. Well, Paul is warning against those who would think they have arrived. And what Paul is presenting to us here is, in one sense, there's a picture. It's far better to be the person who knows how far you still have to run than to be the person who thinks you've run so far and you haven't actually gone that far at all. And he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. In one sense, what he's saying here is those who are truly mature are going to be the ones who realize they're actually not that mature. The ones who are going to, are going to be the ones who realize how far they have to go. That's what Paul's holding up before us. And so he says, let us think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. I love this. Paul's heart, Paul's hope. 
It's in God. It says God's going to reveal it to you. Your side might start hurting. You might start cramping up. You might say, oh, I've got to be there. I'm very close. I've expended so much effort. And God's going to say, actually, you haven't yet. Are you ready to lean on me? And Paul says, God will do that. So how do we prepare ourselves, though, for this work of God in our lives? For this work of him correcting us? For his work of him, even in the straining before us? Well, straining is exhausting. Straining is putting forth effort. And knowing that God reveals things to us as we grow, we recognize that the church is going to be full of people of differing levels of spiritual maturity. So we don't look at our brother or sister who we don't feel is as far along down the road as we are and say, huh, I wish she could be more like me. No, we look at him, we come alongside him and run beside him. You know, another attitude of, as far as how well we're straining or how far as, as far as how well we are or how much we are willing to submit ourselves under the hand of God and his work and his work and even correcting us is to ask ourselves, how often is repentance a part of your life? Do you have anyone you need to repent to of how you've treated them, how you've spoken to them, how you've acted towards them? How often do you repent before God and not just say, oh God, I'm a sinner, help me, but how often do you name before God, God, my attitude towards this person or my attitude towards this situation is not what it ought to be. And here are these vestiges of pride. Here are these vestiges of envy. Here are these vestiges of covetousness that are at the root of this. And God, I need you to have mercy on me. You know, it's real easy to acknowledge who we are while not acknowledging what we need to do to become who God is making us. Let me say that again. It's real easy to acknowledge who we are, sinners in need of grace, but not acknowledging, not calling out the things that God is laying before us to grow us in that grace. Brothers and sisters, a sign of a church body and a, and, and a body of believers that are running the race well is a body of believers who are running alongside of one another and a body of believers who are willing to acknowledge their own weakness. I'm willing to ask for mercy, ask for forgiveness, ask for grace as we go. So that's the correction. There's Paul's conviction, run, strain, strain after Christ. The correction, you're not as mature as you think you are. And then lastly, the confidence that we have. The confidence that we have, verse 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. So verse 15, let us hold, let us, though those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So there's our confidence. The last part of this, verse 15, or verse 16, excuse me. Do you see that? You're straining, you're running, you're striving. Hold true, not to what you hope to attain. Look at that. Not to what you think you might attain. Not to what you think could come your way with a few lucky bounces. But let us hold true to what we have attained. And that is the beauty of the gospel that compels us forward as Christians. Christ has already completed the race. It's strange, right? He calls us to a race that he has already completed. That race of growing in godliness. That race of bringing glory to God in our lives, in our conduct, in our hearts. But then Christ completes that race in his perfect righteousness in the life that he lived. And then he turns around and runs it with us. You ever know somebody that finished the race and then turned around and went back and ran it from the beginning with those who were following after him? Christ has attained it. When we cross the finish line, we are not going to look at that line and say, oh wow, I finished 15,734th. We're going to look at it and say, I finished with Christ. The finish line is Christ. Christ is the one who carries us. Christ is the one who we will finish with the righteousness that Christ has. And we will finish by his work in us. 
Therefore, when we cross the line, there will not be a number. It will simply say, with Christ. So let us hold true to what we have attained. Let us hold true because Christ has made us his own, as verse, 11, or verse 12 says. And let us press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So the call here for us is to run, to strain for, to pursue Christ. And yet the call is to run, to strain for, to pursue Christ, knowing that he has first pursued us. And knowing that he is our strength for running this race. Knowing that he is our confidence. Knowing that he is the one who is with us. Knowing that he is the one that is the means by which we will finish. And so maybe you are tired. Maybe you have been running and you're tired of running. Maybe you're a person who, who uh, think about how this corrects our lives, how this adjusts our lives. For the older saint in this congregation, retirement is not a time to step away from the faith, to coast. Retirement is a time to press on, to run forward, to, to pursue, to strain after Christ. For the younger one, we think, I, I can say this as a recovering younger person, we can, we, you know, you, turn, you get to your mid-30s and you realize you're not as young as you once were. But when I was younger, let's say teenage, early 20s, mid-20s, upper 20s, whatever, I used to think I had the whole world in front of me. We can always think, okay, I've got, I've got, I've got decades ahead of me. I'll give myself to these things and then I'll, I'll, I'll focus on these important spiritual things at a later time. The enemy would like nothing more than to convince us whether we are retiring or whether we are young or whether we are anywhere in between that the race can be run at another time. Either we've already run our race or we we still have time to run the race. But there's no qualifications in Philippians 3. It says, let those of us who are mature think this way. Let us run after Christ. Let us strain in forward in pursuit of Christ. And let us grab hold of what we have attained already in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, we give to you thanks and we rejoice in the fact that though you call us to this race, you enable us, you equip us, you strengthen us for the race through Christ who has already completed it and through Christ who is at work in us. And so Lord, help us as a church family to be a people who passionately pursue you, passionately pursue you in our thoughts, passionately pursue you in our hearts, passionately pursue you in our motivations, and our desires. And we passionately pursue you, not because we're trying to do anything, but live in light of the call that you have placed upon us as you are bringing us to glory. For Lord, we are not running up a hill that is like a rock slide coming down, but we are running along a moving walkway that is going in the direction in which you are taking us. And so Lord, give us the grace to run well. To run well with eyes set on Christ and hearts confident in what he is doing in us. And we pray this all in his name. Amen.